in the heart of a series uh, working our way through the book of Daniel. And so if this is your first week, I would invite you to go back even after you leave at some point this week and uh, go to the church's website and you can access all of the sermons via podcast leading up to this morning's message and catch yourself up to speed. This is an incredible story of God's sovereignty and God's grace, a story that invites us to peek behind the curtain to see the king of heaven seated on his throne, a story that reminds us that even in the midst of the most pagan wasteland experience, God is with his people. And so my hope is that you walk away from this series trusting more than ever that God is both sovereign and good, that he's seated on the throne and that he loves you deeply, the both and of that. My hope is that you walk away from this series with a better grasp of what it means to dig your heels in culturally for the sake of the gospel. My hope is that you walk away from this series with a deeper trust in God's plan for your life, uh, especially and particularly in those moments uh, which may appear to be the most mundane. Ultimately, my hope is that you walk away not just with more knowledge of a particular book of the Bible, but with the knowledge that works its way deep into the recesses of your being so that you become... Uh, Not just a smarter person, but a transformed person. That's what we're after as a church. That's part of our mission, vision, and values. That's part of our DNA. We're not after gospel information, but rather gospel information that leads to gospel transformation. And so with that being said, previously on Daniel, the first four chapters of the book of Daniel take place uh, during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the man who beseeches Jerusalem, the man who plunders the temple of the Lord. The man who exiles Israel's best and brightest. Daniel and his buddies are among those taken to the epicenter of the Babylonian Empire where they're immersed in the king's assimilation program. God gives these boys favor in the sight of the king so that they're eventually brought onto the king's payroll. And for three chapters, if you've been around the last three weeks, chapters two, three, and four, we basically get a front row seat to see the God of heaven flex. It's really cool. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are all about distinguishing Nebuchadnezzar and his gods from Daniel and his God. And what we find is that it's Daniel's God who has the ability to reveal mysteries, not Nebuchadnezzar's. It's Daniel's God who has the the ability to rescue from certain death, not Nebuchadnezzar's. It's Daniel's God who has the authority to sovereignly rule and reign over all of creation, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And as we shift into chapter 5, there's now a new king in town, a new sheriff on the scene. And so the question begs to be answered. Did Nebuchadnezzar's God-exalting declaration in chapter 4, going back to last week, lead to a change in the spiritual landscape of Babylon? Is this new king a worshiper of Daniel's God? Is the story going to take a turn for the better? Or is there nothing new under the sun? Is it much of the same as we continue the story And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, under one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's really difficult to understand, please take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and get going. God, this morning I ask you by the power of your spirit to reveal to us our deep need for you, to reveal to us the ways in which we turn to people and things to numb us, to rescue us. Would you reveal to us at a heart level 
matters pertaining to the way that we steward the very things that you've entrusted us with, much of these things we see in chapter 5, but ultimately, would you give us a, a massive dose of the glorious, unfair nature of your grace poured out on sinners like us through the cross of Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We ask you to do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive your word. Would you move? Would you, would you do what I just declared? Would you transform us this morning? Would you draw non-Christians into the household of faith this morning by your very gospel? And would you transform those of us who already profess to know and love and follow you more and more into the image of Jesus? We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump in. Verse 1, we pick up the story. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. You, you've heard the phrase, the devil's in the details before, perhaps? Well, that actually may be true here in verse 1. The name Belshazzar means, may Bel protect the king. Bel meaning Lord, referring to the Babylonian god Marduk. And so among those in line to the throne, there's still a close connection with the pagan gods of Babylon. That's meant to tip you off as we work our way through this chapter of the Bible. We basically fast-forwarded through a few Babylonian kings to get to this point in the story. Belshazzar is now in power. You're going to see this a lot in this chapter, this declaration that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. Just to clear that up, that, that's not a biological term. Um, rather, it, it, think of it this way. It would be like saying our founding fathers in terms of this nation or the early church fathers. Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's predecessor to the throne, and now a few kings down the line, we find this man in power who happens to be the final ruler of the Babylonian Empire. What we'll find is that the events of this chapter take place the very night that the city of Babylon is going to fall. It's a really interesting scene. If this were a TV show, this would be one of those big episodes that you don't want to miss. The Persians are right outside the gate. And so the question begs to be answered, why in the world are the Babylonian elite partying like it's 1999? What are they doing? Well, some scholars believe that, that this is an attempt to rally the troops, to communicate fearlessness in the midst of certain war, which is not beyond the realm of possibility. Um, during that time in human history, a siege would usually cause people to suffer from both hunger and thirst if they couldn't get their hands on enough food, on enough water, and that would cause them to give themselves up. Well, what we know about the city of Babylon is that the Euphrates River ran right through the heart of the city, which mean, meant that they had an unending water supply on the one hand, but they also had massive amounts of food stored up. They had the hanging gardens planted in the city, enough food to, to last a decade, according to historians. In terms of safety, the walls of the city were 300 feet high. That's 30 stories tall, 75 feet thick. We talked about this last week, that you could put a four-horse chariot on top of the surrounding city wall, and it can make a U-turn without toppling off the side. That's how wide these walls were. So we're talking about a virtually impenetrable fortress of a city, so it's very possible that Belshazzar and the people of Babylon are sincerely unafraid. But it's also possible that this is an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die moment. This very well could be a numbing moment for the elite of Babylon. We just don't know. Regardless of the motivation, the king and his inner circle of leaders are, are getting their party on. 
We see this in verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So this is a very debaucherous scene that we have. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You go back to chapter 1, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, when he besieged Jerusalem, had plundered the temple. And in doing so, he'd brought back some of the vessels uh, to the house of his god in Babylon and placed them in the very treasury of his pagan god. Now here in chapter 4, Belshazzar uh, intends to break out the Lord's fine china, you could say. And not just so that he and his friends can drink from them, but so that they can raise them to toast the Babylonian pagan gods. It's not just sacrilegious. It's not just blasphemous. It's idolatrous. Uh, In one commentary that I read uh, this week, I got this quote. He, Belshazzar, spits in God's eye, as it were, and then goes over to a statue that he himself created and expects that lifeless hunk to protect him from what is to come. If you were around for last week as we plowed our way through chapter 4, you know that God is fully capable of humbling the proud at a moment's notice. And so the question is, will Belshazzar's gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone, actually be able to protect him? And verse 5 begins to give us an indication of the answer to that question. It says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now if you're a Christian you're probably not feeling the weight of what the king is feeling in this moment in the story. Remember, he's a polytheist. He's a worshiper of many gods. He knows that that this is a divine act, but he doesn't know which deity is behind the scenes in this moment. I think sometimes we take for granted the fact that we know certain characteristics and attributes of God, especially the longer you're a Christian. you, You begin to take those things for granted. Imagine a world, think of it this way. Imagine a world in which you know that God is sovereign, but you have no idea of whether he's good or not. That's scary, right? A God who holds the pen of human history in his very hand, yet no knowledge of whether or not we can trust him. No knowledge of whether or not he's an evil dictator up in the cosmos. On the flip side, imagine a world in which you know that God is good, but you have no idea as to whether or not he's sovereign. Well, that's just crippling. That's debilitating, right? A God who would love to help you in your unraveled moments, a God who deeply loves you, yet no knowledge of whether he's actually capable of intervening, no knowledge of whether he's just some nice guy in a heavenly straitjacket. Going back to chapter two, the God of Christianity is a God who makes known. That's a big deal. We can know God, we can know what God is like. Belshazzar doesn't know. He's left to human speculation in this moment. He's left to rifle through the Rolodex of deities that he worships to try to figure out what's going on. He's terrified. His knees are literally knocking. Um, Some interpreters of the the original Aramaic language here argue that uh, he loses uh, the ability to control his bodily functions in this moment. That's how terrified this man is. 
This is unquestionably the hand of God. I love being married because my wife will bring out certain questions that I don't think of sometimes. I like to think that I press into the, the literary side of things fairly well. But this week she asked me, so what does that mean? Like a, a weird human hand just kind of floated out of the sky? Like what? And, and I'm just kind of taking it at face value. Well, you know, obviously, like, the, the Bible says it, so the hand's there. Or do we really need to explain it? I don't know what that means. I don't know if this is, you know, kind of some smoke and fog hand that has the semblance of a human hand. But what we do know is that this is God at work behind the scenes. Uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 8, verse 19, uses this kind of language. In the wake of the plagues on Egypt, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Exodus 31, the Ten Commandments are said to have been written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, the psalmist declares the heavens to be the work of God's fingers. It's what theologians refer to uh, a big word, anthropomorphism, which simply means the attributing of human characteristics to a deity. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. Suffice it to say that in the midst of Belshazzar's arrogant blasphemy and idolatry, God shows up. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Here, here we go again. Is he for real? Seriously. Did he not get the memo that Daniel's the guy that you want in the huddle on this game-winning drive in this moment? Twice already, Daniel's interpreted uh, divine dreams for the previous king, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and yet at the same time, he thinks, hey, let's give these court gestures one more chance. And so he does. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So the, the new king is offering a far more glorious reward than the previous kings had offered. He's offering royalty. He's offering an actual seat at the, the king's very table. And so we're told in verse 8 that all of the wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. No. Can you believe it? Blimey, foiled again, right? Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Again, he's stricken with terror a second time. He has no idea what's going on in this moment. But he senses that he's in the presence of the divine and he's angered the divine. The divine is not very happy with him. And so verse 10 goes on to tell us the queen shows up. Because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O oh, king, live forever. We've heard that before. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, to explain riddles, and to solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. And he will show you the interpretation. It's kind of funny. You have all this pomp and circumstance as the royal queen enters the banqueting hall in this moment. But her, her role in the story is really simple. Is it not? It's to say to the king, stop monkeying around. Go get Daniel. Have you not heard that this is the man that you need to bring in in a moment like this? 
She's such a minor character. We don't even get so much as her name. And yet, if she doesn't walk into the room, the king's left staring at a cryptic wall. That's how this chapter ends. At this point, crazy to think about, Daniel is likely in his 80s. Okay, so every storybook Bible that you've ever read with your kids that has this young teenage Daniel in a lion's den misses it. We haven't even gotten to chapter 6 yet. Daniel is in his 80s likely in this moment. Gives you an idea of just how much time has passed since he and his friends were taken from their home. It's been a long time. Look at the way Daniel is described in verses 11 and 12. Light is found in him. Understanding is found in him. Wisdom is found in him. An excellent spirit is found in him. Knowledge is found in him. I don't know about you, but I want God to do such a mighty work in me that this is what people say about me. And not for the purpose of self-glorification. Remember, the Lord gave. It's a major theme from the beginning of this book of the Bible. The Lord gave. It's simply a declaration that God is at work in this man's life. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. That's a little condescending. Whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you. That the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So same reward is offered to Daniel as was offered to the king's wise men. And I use the term wise men very loosely. King offers Daniel a seat at the royal table. Verse 17 tells us, Daniel answered boldly and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. In other words, your money doesn't motivate me. Honoring the God of heaven is what motivates me. And it's clearly not what motivates you, which is why he says in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. There it is again, the Lord gave. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. He had the power of life and death in his hands under the the banner of God's sovereignty. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, Nebuchadnezzar was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is referring back to last week's passage, Daniel chapter 4. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. In other words, very simply put, verses 18 through 21 tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar experienced a painful humbling at the hands of God. Verse 22, Daniel goes on to say, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You know the story, Belshazzar. You know what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. You know what happened to the former king. You're well aware of it. And yet you still chose to blaspheme the name of God. You still chose to bend your knee to creative things that have no power to save you and you chose to ignore the fact that it's the God of heaven who allows you to breathe every few seconds and you chose to use that very breath to praise so-called gods that are no gods at all so the one true God has decided to send you a reminder that he's the only one worthy of praise the only sovereign verse 24 then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed And this is the writing that was inscribed. So here we go. What was written on the actual wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. You have these four words in Aramaic that are inscribed on the wall of the king's palace. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. So this is what it means. Daniel tells the king. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That's crazy to think that history is being predicted in this moment. Let me, let me attempt to make sense of this interpretation. It's not really that complex. These are three nouns that refer to three weights. And so mene is the equivalent to 500 grams. Tekel, which is where we get the Hebrew term shekel, is the equivalent to 10 grams Parsin is is half of one of these weights. And so what Daniel does is he takes three nouns that that refer to measurements and he relates them to the verbs that they come from. Numbered, God has numbered your days. Weighed, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You don't measure up to stand before the Lord. Divided, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is clearly a message of judgment. Your time is up, Belshazzar. Your days are numbered. The writing is on the wall. No soup for you. Next. (laughs) This is where we get that phrase, the writing is on the wall. All signs point to it's going to happen. Verse 29. Listen to how quickly this thing turns. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. Chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. We're not really sure why Daniel accepts this reward. Um, after all, it doesn't really mean much, does it? Hey, you get to be the third in command of a sinking ship. What do you think about that? Sounds great, doesn't it? More than likely, it's a way of communicating to us, the reader, that the interpretation is legitimate. That even the king himself admits the truth of the interpretation by honoring Daniel. According to verse 30, this is how chapter 5 ends. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. History tells us that Cyrus and the Persians took the city of Babylon that very night. 
Under the command of Cyrus's general, Darius, the Persians were able to divert part of the river by digging canals, and they were able to walk right up under the wall surrounding the city, that massive, impenetrable wall. And the man who still had the smell of wine on his breath from toasting the pagan gods of Babylon with the Lord's fine china, well, that man died. Yet another declaration that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of God is everlasting. And so the question that begs to be answered, like we've gone after every single week, is the all-important question, so what? What are we to take away from this passage of Scripture? An episode that took place in human history long ago. Well, I think there are a few things. One... This passage invites us to confront the ways in which we steward God's belongings sacrilegiously. In Belshazzar's case, it was the vessels of the temple. He used them to toast the pagan gods of Babylon. In our case, it's not that any of us are stealing communion cups from the auditorium, right? We have enough ethical wherewithal to probably not do that. You're certainly probably not going to do it this Sunday if you've been scheming and thinking about it, right? It's not like we're taking communion cups, and then raising them to toast Buddha or Allah or some Hindu god. But, but keep in mind that the curtain has been torn. There, there's not some sacred secular divide. We are collectively a priesthood of believers, that everything that we possess, everything that passes through our hands presents an opportunity, an opportunity to steward whatever that thing is for the glory of God or to use it to profane the name of the Lord. I'll give you some examples. Food is a really good thing. Can we all agree? A gift from God that we can easily sacrilegiously turn into a God thing. It's called gluttony. Money is a good thing, a gift from God that can be used to build his kingdom. But we can also easily sacrilegiously turn it into a God thing. It's called greed. It's called hoarding. It's called investing in the kingdom of self. Sex is a good thing. Trust me. A gift from God that we can easily, sacrilegiously turn into a God thing. It's called pornography. It's called extramarital sex. Children are a good thing. A gift from God that we can easily, sacrilegiously turn into a God thing. Where all of a sudden we worship our children. We make them the center of our universe. We root our identity ultimately in our parenting. You see how it works? You don't don't have to take something from the very sanctuary of the Lord, to find yourself in Belshazzar's shoes. God is the owner of everything, and we are stewards of God's good gifts. And so I think one of the questions that this text calls us to wrestle with is how might God be calling me to stop stewarding his stuff in less than honoring ways to his name? And instead to use whatever it is that he's entrusted me with to bring him glory. What does that look like for you? How might, how might that be the spirit of God calling you to a deeper step of repentance and faith. Another thing that I think we can wrestle with in a text like this is this. This passage invites us to confront the emptiness and powerlessness of false gods. We've talked about this before in this series. It goes hand in hand with the stewardship issue that we just hit on. Those things that we steward um, in sacri- uh, sacrilegious ways are oftentimes functional saviors, functional gods in our lives. You might say, I'm a Christian. I worship one God. What are you talking about, crazy man? Well, while that may be true theologically, we we all functionally turn to people and things from time to time. Functional saviors that promise to rescue us, that promise to give us meaning and worth. Belshazzar had his gods of gold, 
and silver and iron and bronze and wood and stone. Gods that he trusted to deliver him from both the Persians and the very God of heaven that day. Gods that were powerless to deliver him. Gods that were powerless to give him eternal, ultimate, lasting worth. One of my favorite passages as it pertains to the the senselessness of idolatry is Isaiah chapter 44, um, verses 14 through 19. There's actually a subtitle above those verses in most of our Bibles that says the folly of idolatry. And this is what we read uh, in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 14. The carpenter cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it, and it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Goes on to say, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Do you not see the craziness of this just yet? Goes on to say, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Seriously? That's what Belshazzar does in this chapter. He worships a created thing, something that he actually formed, fashioned as if it were divine rather than worshiping the one who made the created thing in the first place. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds like absolute folly. Except for the fact that we all do it. We all take created things and deify them in in moments of doubt, in moments of sin, in moments of unbelief. What does that look like in your life? Again, for most of us, you're probably um, not carving images and placing them on your mantle to worship. My guess is that most of you, if I were to go to your Facebook page, one of your hobbies is not um, carving graven images. You probably don't have a business on Etsy doing that, I would bet, if you're a Christian. But again, we, we do often trust in empty, powerless, created things to rescue us, to give us meaning and worth. I think one of the questions that we can wrestle with to diagnose that in our own hearts is this. Who or what do you turn to for deliverance in your unraveled moments? It doesn't have to be something complex. It can be something as simple as comfort food or the next bottle of wine. Again, we don't know, but if this was a numbing moment for Belshazzar, knowing that certain doom was impending, there's a lesson to be learned in that, I think. You know it's an idol if in an unraveled moment, it devastates you to think about not having that person or thing to rescue you from your disappointment, from your pain. It reveals that God's not enough, that that God is not functionally our true rescuer in that moment at a heart level. Another way we could ask the question, who or what do you turn to for meaning and worth in your moments of identity crisis? Again, it doesn't have to be something complex. It can be something as simple as the next wardrobe edition, something as simple as a sports team that you attach yourself to because it makes you feel like you're a part of something bigger than you. 
You know it's an idol if in a moment of identity crisis it devastates you to think about not turning to that person or that thing to give you meaning, to give you value. It reveals that God's not enough, that our identity is not functionally rooted in the person and work of Jesus in those moments. In Calvin's words, the human heart is a factory of idols, just pumping one out after another after another, and they're all powerless to deliver us. They're all powerless to give us meaning, to give us worth. They've all been weighed in the balances and found wanting, to use the words of chapter 5. And yet, perhaps the most critical thing to wrestle with in a passage like this is the very character of God. This passage invites us to to confront our view of God. Nebuchadnezzar comes face to face with the God who reveals mysteries in chapter 2. Okay, think about the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Comes face to face with the mystery, a God who reveals mysteries in chapter 2, and yet he doesn't become a devoted follower of Daniel's God. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 comes face to face with the God who rescues, and yet again he doesn't become a devoted follower of Daniel's God. It's only in the wake of his third major encounter with God, his humbling, going back to last week, chapter 4, that he gives praise and honor to the one true king of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is given three chances. And ultimately, on the other side of his experience of judgment, he experiences restoration. Belshazzar, on the other hand, doesn't get so much as a second chance. There is no restoration on the other side of judgment for this man. He's here one moment, and he's gone the next. So quickly, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 5 happen. Now, let me ask you what I think is a very theologically provocative question. Which of these outcomes do you find to be more unfair? I'll be honest with you. For years, my answer to that kind of question was obviously the guy who didn't get a second chance. How unfair is that? The other guy gets three opportunities to bend a knee to the God of heaven. Meanwhile, this guy, Belshazzar, is just one and done. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's strange that this chapter doesn't end the same way that the previous three do with the king declaring the excellencies of the God of Israel. Wouldn't the fair thing be for this chapter to end like the three that preceded it? But here's the problem. That kind of thinking assumes that God owes us anything but the outcome of chapter 5. Human entitlement creates an expectation that God must respond the way he does with Nebuchadnezzar in our lives. But the gospel declares something very different, does it not? The gospel declares that like Belshazzar, we are all great sinners in need of a great savior. We don't even have to leave Paul's letter to the Romans to find out that none of us is without excuse, that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of our sin is death. Like Belshazzar, we've all been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. The writing is on the wall. Apart from divine intervention, we're all done for. If every human being, let me say it this way, if every human being throughout the course of human history experienced the same fate as Belshazzar, that would be both the dictionary definition and the biblical definition of fair. What's unfair is the way God deals with Nebuchadnezzar. It's gloriously unfair that a proud, idolatrous sinner would experience the restoring grace of God. That's crazy! That's the gospel. The gospel isn't fair. The gospel is gloriously unfair. 
That Jesus would take my sin and gift me his perfect righteousness? Are you kidding me? What took place on the cross is hands down the most gloriously unfair trade in all of human history. That God has been gloriously unfair in giving us what we don't deserve, namely his grace, and giving Jesus what we do deserve, namely his wrath. Praise God for every single story of redemption. If only one person in all of human history was redeemed, God would be most gracious. I mean, isn't the grace of God lavish when you really think about it? That he would do something so gloriously unfair as to restore Nebuchadnezzar. That he would do something so gloriously unfair as to stoop down and breathe life into your dead, lifeless soul. Praise God. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not on life support. Not in a coma. You were dead. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. All of us. But the glory of the gospel, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we were raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We have a real opportunity this morning to praise the glorious, gracious God of heaven. A God who would reach down to rescue even one sinner from the spiritual ocean bottom. If you're a Christian, as we prepare to take communion this morning, my invitation to you is very simple. Yes, it would be to wrestle with those questions of stewardship to wrestle with those questions of functional saviors that we turn to in those moments uh, of deliverance, of identity and worth. But ultimately, my hope for you in the coming moments as we prepare to take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood, is that you would simply stop and marvel. That you would slow down long enough. I don't know how long it's been since you marveled at God's grace and reaching down to save you, a hopeless sinner by the cross of Jesus Christ. But stop long enough to simply marvel, to soak in the deep love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, I grew up in and out of the church, and on more than one occasion, uh, I functioned as a pet project of someone in a local church. Um, And as a result, I heard the question a number of times, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And, And I I typically buck against that question because I think it reduces the gospel to less than what the gospel is. It truncates the gospel. It makes the gospel nothing more than a future tense get out of hell free card. And if you're a Christian, if you've been around this church long enough, you know that the gospel matters today and it will matter tomorrow for you as a Christian and it will matter Tuesday and it will matter Wednesday. The gospel is not just some truncated future tense truth. And yet, If there were ever a passage of scripture that would actually warrant that question, it's Daniel chapter 5. You see this man who uh, is in a moment where all is right in the world, 
where he is living amongst his toys, amongst his trinkets, amongst the kingdom that he has made for himself. And little does he know that this very night his soul would be demanded of him. And so I do think that this passage warrants our wrestling with that question. If you came in and you're not a Christian, I would put that question before you. What if? What if your story is like Belshazzar's? What if your soul is demanded of you this very night? What if you had to stand before the God of heaven? What would you hold before him? Would it be your morality? If so, my hope tonight as you lay your head on the pillow, if Jesus doesn't save you right now, is that you would struggle to sleep, realizing that, that the question that haunts anyone who trusts in their own morality is how good is good enough? How do you know? How do you know when you've gotten there? If the standard of holiness is to jump up and touch the moon, so to speak, we can get about one foot off the ground. In comparison to God's holiness, we all fall short. And yet Jesus has done everything necessary to reach down and redeem dead sinners on the spiritual ocean bottom. And so if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you would turn to Jesus right now and put your faith and trust in him, in his perfect, obedient life on your behalf, in his substitutionary, atoning death for you, for your sin. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now as triumphant, exalted king of the universe. And he waits for you to bend your knee to him as Savior and King. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.